A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering woo-woo-woo-woo-woo spoiler alert territory. Uh, if you aren't caught up with us, this is a new book, uh, second book in the Red Rising saga, Golden Sun. Um, so get to it. PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We like to tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Drink of us as your thunk beakly book club. You did really well with that. Good <laughs> I didn't work. think Good I work. would do that well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So today we are going to be talking about and breaking down the first eight chapters of Golden Sun, the second book in the Red Rising series. It's super fun. I'm really excited for us to finally get into this. It's been, for us, as we had kind of talked about in previous episodes, it's been like, what, four or five weeks? Yeah, like five weeks. Since we've read? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's been it's been a bit. Um, and now everything is going to be very close to live time. We're within like a week of publication-ish But before we uh, get into the book, what are you drinking? Uh, So I have yet another sour. (laughs) I've been really on a sour kick, but um, this one's a little different. This is uh, Amaretto. So same base of half an ounce of simple syrup, one ounce of lemon juice, and then two ounces of the liquor of choice, which is Amaretto this time. And then a little lemon twist for garnish. Following that up, I am taking whatever I happen to have in my fridge, which is a Lining Kugel sh- Summer Shandy, which uh, <laughs> there, there you, know, you go. Should be good. It's uh, like your White Claw. <laughs> probably pretty true. <laughs> what have you got? I am having a cold brew honey vodka drink. So it's a vodka espresso martini cold brew cocktail, whatever you want to call it, made of uh, chameleon cold brew, teaspoon of honey, two shots of vodka and some Icy Boys. It's uh, it's pretty solid at first. It didn't taste great, but then the honey actually like settled in and it tastes much better now. Now it's like even not bad to follow that up. I've got a Southern Pines Brewing Company Man of Law American IPA, which is it's solid. Okay, no complaints. And I've noticed that New England IPAs have become so like entrenched in the beer scene that some places aren't even putting that on the label. It, it, like when it says American IPA, what sort of style is it referring to? More West Coast or East Coast or somewhere in between? Um, so I think it's kind of in between. It's a little bit fruitier. So it's it's not like hazy, but so just okay. like reading this here, hop forward yet balanced man of the law is a candied orange pineapple Roman flavor from Amarillo. Zithos and Cascade hops match with medium body and caramel sweetness. Okay. Are you feeling lucky, punk? Gotcha. But yeah. With that, we're going to get into chapters one through eight. No, no two, until eight. up until eight. We had a discussion about <laughs> yes. this last time. No, I know. Yeah, it was just just throwing you off. Uh, the story has a quick intro where the other left off that I really liked the the kind of intro page where it's kind of a summary right outside of the Institute. Very interesting. Just a quick conversation between Augustus and Darrow and kind of reflecting back on the ba- the last book. It was an interesting way to summarize it by actually giving us something we didn't really see. Mm hmm. In terms of the conversation with uh, with Nero right off the bat. I was surprised by how quick, like how 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 quickly it jumped into two years. 
down the line. Yeah, I was. So throughout all of the predictions, guesses and everything like that, I was very curious as to where you and, you know, Bing, our guest this week or last week, rather, uh, were, were going. And it was interesting to see you go kind of and talk about the Academy as sort of like this book was going to be pre the Academy yeah. and the, then the Academy was going to be the final book or this was going to be a little bit of an interim. And we actually, I mean, we can get into this right away. We basically skip over the entire Academy. This does not tread on the ground of repeating a story. Which I kind of like. I, I kind of like it because it seems like you said, repeating a story. It, w- it would have been essentially repeating the same plot line as before. But we got the important difference in that he doesn't win in the end. I think that's really important. And we'll definitely talk more about that. I think it's a really interesting little bit here as they get into the actual space combat. What it, what I find really interesting, too, about this is the tone feels very different, right? It does. Um, it felt a lot more like Ender's Game, from what I remember. And it's been a long time since I've read that. I know we've talked about the comparisons there, and the comparisons have been made to Ender and Darrow uh, by some like reviews and critics and stuff. But um, this is where I really kind of felt like those comparisons made more sense and, like, came to fruition just being in a war simulation which wasn't entirely simulated yeah, it was until it wasn't right? right like it was it was great the other thing that i just want to say about the intro before we uh we walk away from it is you did basically predict portions of this here right you did say that like augustus was going to protect darrow from the bologna house yeah. almost entirely um and kind of like led into a lot of that and we'll talk about kind of your predictions and what i picked up from the wrap up episode, as well as the Golden Sun intro, and kind of what we're going to do with your predictions going forward nearer to the end. But just want to mention it right off the bat that, like, you, you knocked one out of the park. That's not even the one that I sent you a text message about, which was pre the first page. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, where it breaks down, like, characters. First of all, is the map of the, like, colors. That was really interesting to see because I didn't realize that's how the hierarchy worked sort of multiple colors on the same level. And I genuinely thought obsidians were were much higher than they are. So I think it was mentioned in the previous book, but not that well, where there were low colors and mid colors or low colors and mid colors and high colors. I I didn't realize it was like an actual like distinct thing. I thought it was more of a like sort of spectrum and like the low colors were arbitrarily the ones on the lower end, like the lower end of like economic Mm -hmm. hardship. Not at all. And I I assumed it was like a straight up hierarchy, but instead it's like red on the bottom and then silver or uh, brown, obsidian and pink all together in the next rung and then grays in the next rung and then five of them in the next and then three in the next and then golds up top. I definitely agree with you. It is interesting. I feel like it kind of pieces out in, I mean, obviously it pieces out into the groups that are on that front kind of page, right? They're really just three kind of breakdowns. With golds obviously being the the peak of the food pyramid. I find it interesting too, and we can talk about this more when we get to it, but so far we found that a lot of the colors also have like a prestiged rank. You know what I mean? Like they they earn a rank above whatever their color is in some fashion by being an expert in whatever their chosen yeah. field or craft. Yeah, it is, talks about right? that at least with the blues um pretty early on. Did they with the blues? The like the commander of the blues that Darrow like yells at. 
Yeah, yeah. I forget if they give them an actual title or not. No, that's that's interesting. I actually didn't pay attention to that. I I can't remember if it was an actual title. City and Stained, Gold, Peerless Scar. Yeah, yeah. There's true. That's true. Those those were more what I was thinking of. But the blue might have one. I mean, they. I think it mentioned something like that. I'll do, I'll do research. All later. right. But uh, the one I took a picture of and sent, I think, quote, fucking called it was Tactus Alrath, Lancer of House Augustus, which. Is exactly what I thought would be a really interesting, cool way to continue with that character. Most of my predictions genuinely don't remember. <laughs> like they they were on the spot based on like what we were talking about, and I did not commit them to memory. I hadn't written them down, so I have no idea what I actually predicted. And we're gonna get into that later as well, sort of as a fun thing to do on the podcast, but. I have no idea what I predicted Roke would be. I knew it would be something more or less like combative and more strategic. I remember guessing, but I don't remember if I guessed what sort of house he would be a part of. Right. I don't know that you predicted what house he was going to be a part of or anything like that. I do know that your general thought was that he would step away from military and be more of a politico. Yeah. uh, More than anything else instead of the world that he's going to be more involved with politics and a little bit further away from the line of battle. But mm-hmm. here at the Academy, he's directly in line. And that doesn't mean, you know, that he couldn't become a politician. Yeah. I, I, I've, yeah. I feel like, I don't know how I articulated it, but I feel like I would have thought less, not necessarily not military, but strategy and more like constant member of the war room as opposed to actual lieutenant or leader of any sort of forces more more a strategio <laughs> strategio i like that you just made that up on the I spot did. no that's that's good though you I, said I politico like, ultimately i know that's an actual word but strategio yeah right right politico is a term inside of the universe it's fine strategio cool. is a fun um, game it is a fun game i do love strategio <laughs> <laughs> we we do open up the story with an incredible bang. I love that we're greeted with this older Darrow. We get that we get a little bit more than two years. We know that Darrow is a year older than the other kids, or a year and a half that he was out with the institute, almost two years older. So we know that he's even older, but they don't know that. They assume that he's the same age. Mm-hmm. And now he's got the peerless scar from the institute, and just has this sort of commanding sense about him that's a little bit different than when we last saw him. He's almost a little bit more humble and a little bit more approachable. So, you know, we've got that kind of two year span. What do you do? You have any kind of like off the cuff predictions right now that you want to? Well, obviously, they've they've mentioned that there was no connection to the Sons of Aries, like no transmissions from Dancer, which is what I would have guessed had Mm -hmm. that not been stated. I'm sure because because he's still seeing like mentions of EO in the world. I'm thinking he he probably got a little bit more of that and maybe got the the opportunity to dig into it. It seemed like he was a pretty prominent public figure for a while, which will be interesting to hear about. I think that's really interesting, especially with the hollow net uh, and the, that entire connective tissue and sort of the way that videos are shared and everything else. You know, it's kind of like a constant YouTube of TV or a stream like that. Like a TV channel. <laughs> Like the news. I mean, that's the HC, though. That's not the hollow net. Hollow net's oh, a little okay. different. But, I mean, it's it, it's close. It's basically the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. You search for things on the hollow net. You watch videos on the hollow net. You share unicorn shitting memes on the, the hollow net. That stays in because that's actually canon. Yeah, it is uh, canon. Because <laughs> Severo... Yeah, I mean, is just a great, great shit lord. So, yeah, I mean, is just a great, great shit lord. It's, it's an interesting perspective, too, to, like, hear th- this happens and we can we can 
we'll, we'll just talk about it now as opposed to later since brought it up. But being disconnected from a, a handful of the friends, you know, most of the howlers aren't around. Yeah, they all got sent to Pluto. And Severo. They're all on Pluto, which, you know, fucking sucks for them, right? Yeah, fuck Pluto. It's not even a planet anymore. I wonder if they think it's a planet. I think they call it a planet. What I what I think behind is... Behind the times, I, man. Also, <laughs> I think currently Pluto is declared a planet. It was removed and then re-added uh, due to public outrage, which makes no when? sense. But Like years ago. It's no, not, no. I don't think Pluto so. Is a planet Google. So, <laughs> uh, NASA administrator says Pluto is still a planet. Um, yeah, but NASA is a fucking anyway. <laughs> Pluto's a planet. Society doesn't care. They're going to nuke your face. So, um, I really like that the first actual line of like present dialogue that's that's happening right now, as opposed to in the past, is it's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> it's, just, it's a it's a trap. And yeah, it's kind of a, a perfect perfect reference. It, there there are a decent number of references. I also really like that I'm still playing games. This is just the deadliest yet, which totally reminded me of Ender right off the bat, mm-hmm. especially in the kind of the sequel novels. We also get introduced to a lot of primary characters that we assume he's been working with over the course of the academy. You know, a lot of old faces like Tactus and Roke, who we've already talked about. As well as a couple of new ones, um, we get Victra right off the bat, who's the sister, uh, half sister of Antonia, mm-hmm. um, Victor Julii. We get Theodora, who's a personal attendant, Pink to Darrow, as well as the Bologna brute Carnus. Thoughts on the characters? Carnus, the whole Bologna thing. I get it, and I get that they're like mortal enemies or whatever, but it seems a little out of proportion. Because they've all gone through the same thing that he did. Like, it seems weird that they, that none of them understand or take the time to understand that, like, he didn't have a choice. Of, of course he didn't have a choice, right? I mean, obviously we know that he didn't have a choice. I mean, it's, it's a blood feud regardless of whether there was a choice or not, you know, because you still wronged our house regardless of whether you had a choice. So, like, an inherited belief at this point. Right. In terms of the, the blood feuds and, like, the, sort of sacrament around the duels, other things like that. I mean, I it does feel archaic in ways. It does. But it is also sort of their their own like modern spin on it. I mean, it speaks to the kind of the superiority thing, but also even in that circumstance, because it's their family, it's it's a wrong. Victra seemed pretty cool. I didn't get enough of a like read on her to know like exactly how she is, but but she seemed less evil than antonia did <laughs> more more on the level more mature but she's like 27 so i guess it makes sense and Carnus is 30 yeah for the record yeah so like he is much older but the academy takes time and like you don't graduate until you're ready you it seemed like he was abnormally young to even go there but i guess so was tactus then and roke like they they all were they're like they're even younger than he was were they actual members of the academy or were they uh just kind of his crew that he got to like hire they're members of the academy as well they start off in the academy um but they're obviously they're not going to be like a praetor so consider it different you know classes or whatever within kind of the class of the academy although again we uh we also don't get a a terribly lot in terms of description right here off the bat but that's that's kind of the way that it seems the way that it's played is they went here for the most part on the side of um at the very least tactus 
and Roke did because they were on the winning team and they made probably some really important plays and were looked at as important figures to be put into the academy. Whereas someone like the Jackal who took second wasn't. Tactus uh, seemed to almost take the same role that Pax did. Hmm. Like in, in, in terms of loyalty and respect, but also strength and intelligence. A little bit different, obviously, than Pax. But just thinking about that conversation later on, which, I mean, jumping ahead a little bit, where Darrow overhears people talking about how long he's going to survive. And someone says three days and Tactus goes, oh, no, 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 much longer than that. I'll give him at least 10. That seemed like a line Pax would have said in earnest. Yeah, yeah. I think they're saying it for similar reasons. I think they would be saying it for similar reasons. I totally see where you're coming from. I think what we've found in Tactus over the long term, over the two year period, is a not not identical, but like a similar kind of honorific loyalty that I think to some degree, Pax would hold. Pax might have more of a personal sort of relationship, whereas Tactus is pretty much reputation is all that matters, it seems. Because he does kind of forsake him in that moment. He does kind of like, he doesn't fully turn away, but he definitely like quarter turns away, you know? I don't know if it even is, though. Like It's not I, I think yeah. it's I think it's him being realistic, but also thinking that that's a pretty good feat to survive for 10 days. It, se- it seemed like he was genuinely hopeful about his chances in giving him that amount of time. Yeah, I mean, all, all told, I really like Tactus's perspective um, and kind of the way that he, he really, within like the first couple of pages, like he was a character in the last book, but as mentioned, I was, I was definitely getting a little bit aggressive with you guys and your opinions on him in the last couple episodes but i think that it's interesting because he does become such a much more fleshed out character right here within the first couple yeah, pages he seems very very different but i think that a lot of that is still sitting on the surface in the previous stuff so like it's a question of whether or not he was going to survive and be a big character totally get it that makes sense because uh, he wasn't a he wasn't a huge character in no. the last book but he was significant he was he was a like second or even like not quite a tertiary character but like he was definitely a secondary secondary and a half character the final character who i mentioned earlier was theodora thoughts there it it didn't seem like i knew enough it seemed odd how attached he was to her and i didn't get a read on why okay i don't I, i don't know yet i just think it's interesting that he has a personal attendant pink you know like an assistant at this point um, who later we find out is a rose, right? So was it at one point a high-ranking pink? So I, I didn't understand that either. Like I, I understood that a rose was a higher level than the typical pink, but it seemed it seemed like rather than a special designation, a special um, class of like a specific place where they were taught, like a prestigious school or something. As opposed to like a higher actual legal definition rank and more of a, oh, you're a graduate of Harvard or something like that. That's more what it felt. So what I think is really interesting is I think you're definitely on something there. It is in some form. I think they call it the garden. Yeah. And I think they did mention the garden gets here. And so I think the garden is where all pinks originate from. But then there's a higher. So I I guess I guess it's similar to the peerless, peerless card. Okay. It's similar enough on the outset where it appears that way. The thing that's interesting about Theodora is she kind of references it 
is that it's almost as though it fades as they age. So it's like they they eventually are no longer a rose. Okay. Because of their age. Uh, but that's really the only thing. That seems to be just kind of the way pinks work in general, though. They've been bred very specifically for specific tasks. So Fucking. And, and I mean, like, general <laughs> servitude. Like, yes, no, no, yeah, no, predominantly, no. like, sexual desire. Yeah, like, they were bred to be beautiful. But, yes, they have other jobs and other mm-hmm. roles. But, like, that's what they were bred for. Definitely. One of the things that I really wanted to uh, make mention of that we hadn't really talked about in the last book, but that I think is important to just talk about in sort of in terms of the general context is uh, the entire series does an excellent job of portraying sexuality as such like a casually accepted thing. You know, like there's no like, oh, he's bisexual or like, oh, he likes men. It's very much like a, oh, he might have fucked him or like whatever else. And it's it's very casual to the point of where it all like blends in the background to some degree you're right though just sex in general was never really discussed other than in context with the pinks i mean there is there were like winks and nods to certain things at different points like cassius right away in the beginning uh talking about how he slept with slept with antonia um and there there were a couple of like other like winks and nods but it's all very subtle it's all like underhanded because it's just the way that society is you know and it's it's not important it just is. And I think that that's a cool and good and like a facet of science fiction. I really liked it. I, I think it's also really interesting because there is kind of like an inherent sexuality to how Tactus talks. Like he's very seductive um, as opposed to his peers because he is kind of a pixie or a bronzy compared to all of the other golds that we've met, you know? Yeah. So to uh, to get back to this chapter... The the phrase that I really like right at the end is hic sunt leones, mm-hmm. um, in which all the lieutenants echo, which is here be lions, which is great. Yeah, which was the, the tag at the beginning of the book, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I love getting into the heads of the blue here in chapter two, right? The eerie silence from the blue crew as the functions of war take over on the plane through which their minds now drift. Words are slower than icebergs. It's often said they're more computer and- than man. The wrapping of the knuckles in approval or like cheering. And that's like the way they show any sort of emotion was interesting and cold. It was a cool description. It is. It is super cool. And they are like these kind of cold calculating logic as their only means or bounds. Darrow trying to get them to laugh constantly. Right. And totally failing. So (laughs) just trying to connect with any blue, you know, like give me give me a give me a blue that likes me it's kind of his perspective on it it's interesting so after a brief moment of celebration for from defeating the seemingly last part of the bologna fleet they're ambushed and it is a trap in fact um and what i find really fascinating here is very quickly we move from my number one problem with the first book which i know we talked about briefly is that darrow is so good at everything that it's like you're just really good at all of the things and there's nothing to like critique you on or there's no place for you to kind of like grow to some degree but he lost and so because he lost you know like now there's now there's a place to go with with his character Exactly. There's there's growth to be had. It's a humanization to some degree, even though he was supposed to be more than human going from red to gold. Now he's among the golds, the like real peerless golds and losing. Okay, so hear me out. Do you think this just from from like uh, the standpoint of how the book was written? Do you think this was planned from the jump or do you think Pierce Brown got some criticisms saying like he was too flawless and immediately wrote in? 
like a failure for him. So I think it's a little bit different. I think the way that you get caught in writing character is normally you have this dream or this plan for the character and then you run out of things to say or do because they either don't have enough flaws or you don't have interesting things to explore. And so you need to create a situation in which you need to have them like flex their muscles. So a situation for Darrow to flex his muscles is losing absolutely everything, Mm -hmm. right? Because then now he has to like redo everything and regain. He has to reclimb the social ladder. He has to fight for, you know, even though he's gone through all these schools, he has to like fight his way back into maybe uh, some form of power. Yeah. So I think, I don't think it was strictly from reviews. I don't, it, it would be tough to say that it wasn't, that that wasn't pulled in. It wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying reviews, but like maybe a mentor of his or like a, like a personal yeah, critique. An editor. Yeah, so I would say it's it might be a little bit of A and B. Like you you kind of know the solution, but you don't know how to get there. You know the problem and someone suggests how to get there and they're wrong. And so you do it your own way. Yeah. It's normally the like writer way perspective. But yeah, I, I think that it is both. The scene that follows is on page, you know, page 14 forward, is one of the best spaceship crash scenes i've ever seen in text Mm -hmm. like the the description of the other capital ship taking out from under the asteroid burning already you know split in half from an earlier conflict just barreling towards them hitting the midline the burst of air knocking themselves 30 feet across everything all of that is just perfect the, the ship shutters groaning like an ancient dying beast sinking in the deep. It's just, it's excellent. Yes, it is. Like this, it was very succinct and beautifully written as far as a space collision goes. And like him grabbing Theodora being thrown across. Like, I think the, the key difference here to me is like, I think about the, I think the most accessible thing for a lot of people are maybe the star trek or star wars movies and shows where like you obviously see a crash and like a a captain or commander grabs onto the deck in front of them and they hold themselves down by holding onto this pedestal while the ship goes sideways but reality with force is more like oh i am jerked way farther than anticipated because the ship can't adjust and so the, the physics feel a little bit more real and there's there's just a lot of like dimension to that and him grabbing theodore and protecting her gives it that perspective of like she's clearly more important than we fully understand at this point. Like there there's something there and I really want to know what it is. Even if it's just like an innate connection, you know, or like you know, she's his personal attendant and it's really important that she's taken care of. Yeah. Cuz he does respect low colors as a part of like his sort of Right. It seems it seems more personal than that. Maybe maybe I'm reading too far into it, but it definitely doesn't seem like his typical because there are other low colors that he, like, pushes out of his way. Yeah, I, I don't think we get an answer, you know? He does regret pushing those low colors out he of does, the way. He does, but he does it. He didn't do that with her. And also, he chose her over other high colors in the form of grays. But yeah, so, I mean, it's it's interesting, nonetheless. I, there, there are... Grays are respected portions of society to some degree. Yeah, they, and, I mean, they're military, you know, essentially. They're, they're mm-hmm. military and police. Yeah, I mean, so far as we know. Well, that's what it says. You can't say that to me. Police and military (laughs) personnel is like the only description we're given for gray. So that's all I know. And I will. You're right. Believe that until 
told otherwise. So we had kind of already talked about it as well. Uh, the lieutenants dispersed and immediately dropped into their pods. The blues desynced from the network that they were connected to, dropped into their own pods and ejected off the ship. Um, this is also highly unusual because they use simulated nukes and missiles to fight mm-hmm. so as to not either like a overly damage the ships and b not kill people. Yeah. Right. I like mean, that's the other part of this. Each ship is-, is worth the cost of 20 cities on Mars. So this is highly unusual for a number of reasons mm-hmm. that they even have to go through this. Um, but yeah, so we, we talked about like Darrow grabbing Theodora, running through the crowd, pushing away the low colors and feeling kind of ashamed as doing so, because obviously his survival is important because his goal of survival is to support the low colors going forward, pushing his way until he you know makes it back to his room. The greys ultimately help him out by shooting in the air and cl- kind of clearing the way with their weapons. Mm-hmm. The gray scene where they're debating who gets the spot just hurts. Yeah, though there's the... It's two days from retirement and he almost had his pension kind of almost exactly that. But uh, two years is, I think, what it was. But like that, that's such a cliche (laughs) when it comes to like military or like police deaths. I'm I'm so with you on that. What I think is I'm so with you like that is 100% a cliche. What I think is so interesting is that it's interesting to see cliches inside of this universe because like we don't get a human perspective to some degree. We get these superior people most of the time. So to see kind of like the bickering going on of like paperwork and everything else of the grays. Yeah. It's interesting. It is. It's it's like weird. He's like, well, I'm going to make sure the the lieutenant or the sergeant lieutenant can't remember. It like is just like, oh, I'm going to file the paperwork <laughs> and I'm going to make sure to put that in his report so that he doesn't even receive a death pension. <laughs> like it's just bitter. <laughs> 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 it's interesting you know it's it's different it is it's kind of funny in a morbid horrible kind of way but you know i i really i really dig it i really think it's a it's a clever spin on uh kind of like incorporating that back in and also i think it is both very shocking and also like it's a humor release valve to some degree because it seems like such a small problem compared to the things that darrow face even though it's darrow faces even though it's very real you know, I don't know. I like it. Yeah, me too. Marcel getting shot in the fucking forehead, though. Like <laughs> that moment was very brutal. And then she was like, all right, so we're going in by rank. <laughs> and then the third person just stays. It's just uh, what do you think of the star cell star shell suit? Oh, man, I wanted to see that so badly. Did you? So fucking bad. That would have been so cool. But also it would have. Yeah effectively destroyed another entire ship breaking a hole into the essentially the windshield of the bridge what are you gonna do you're gonna drift until you collide with something i think the whole idea of like launching yourself at a ship and breaking through the the hull that way is fascinating yep. also getting overridden by the proctors at the last second after he's like arguing with the computer system with a blue to like make it happen mm-hmm. you know like fuck and getting to the like one countdown then red screened at the last second it's like god damn it so then we hit chapter three blood and piss which i think should instead be titled more like piss and sadness <laughs> because <laughs> the beginning is sad and then darrow gets pissed on piss and sadness yep yeah that's about right darrow is mentally lost at the beginning of the chapter among the corpses that have been left behind by their skirmish um, what was normally a simulation, you know, very much like the end. Of, we're super spoiling Ender's game 
constantly here, but you know, whatever. Ender's Game, Lord of the Rings, what uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. Those are the three books that like PJ's read. So like, <laughs> if we're going to relate anything to anything, those are the books. If you haven't read Ender's Game, please they do so. They also work well with this. Yeah, they're also, they're, yeah, on target. Except for Gandalf the Nebula. Gandalf the Nebula was never realized. <laughs> you know, he's he's lost along these corpses and, you know, that what was a normal simulation, ships collided, sprang his soldiers everywhere, everything became real. 833 people died, way more than died in the Institute. What did you think overall of his reaction? Uh, I think it makes total sense. And I, I think he's not getting any sort of sympathy or like relation because they all see them as lower colors that are doing their duty and serving the society to help build up the golds to be stronger. Like even Roke believes that. So I, I think that's just such a like rooted belief within that society that like very few golds even have the perspective to have empathy towards the lives of some of the lower colors that Darrow kind of feels isolated and lost in feeling bad about it. It's it's interesting too because he also like can't share those feelings, but then at the same time he's also harassed for not sharing his feelings like yeah. because he has a perspective that is truly outside the normal realm of perspective because it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense necessarily well maybe to anyone it might make sense to roke because he is kind of a romantic and he does kind of have that perspective where i think if darrow full-on like sat down and had a conversation with him roke might open up yeah i think he would i think he would i think you're right and i I, he would still have the society backing of the conversation though but like i think roke views it less as like a this is just the way it is and more as a we're living within these sort of rules and -hmm. they're doing their duties and genuinely trying to build a society as best as it can be built and while it's tragic that they died they ultimately were serving us and this was part of the deal that maybe they wouldn't survive. And I think it's especially put into perspective with the Greys to some degree, right? Like Marcel and other people, like they, they either serve years, they earn pensions, they pay for their family and all their kids, you know, whatever else in service of the society. And so we kind of get it's it's not like it's just a raw comment from Roke that we're we're listening to or looking at. We do get a perspective even if it's kind of flawed and one-sided from the grays. Yeah, but I think I think part of that is probably he doesn't have the perspective or the need to have the perspective to think about how it could be different and what could be done to overthrow this and liberate those colors that are essentially acting as slaves. Like it's just not registering as a possibility or an option in Rook's and Roke being the one that would be the most, with with the exception, I, I would say the exception to this sort of thought process would be Severo and Fitchner because they seem sort of outcast within the Gold Society. Even all the Howlers too, right? Those them like, too. They're yeah. they're out in Pluto, right? They're basically neglected, mm-hmm. dealing with pirates and 
No, y- the uggo that is. <laughs> yeah, <Fitchner. laughs> I, I think I think you're onto something though with the total description of kind of the the way that society separates itself in that way. Obviously, some painful like thoughts and parallels to our own society. I, I think that's very intentional, and I think it's something that should be discussed or at least kept in mind because uh, clearly, clearly, there's some like unspoken commentary coming from Pierce Brown about society in general and how it works and who's important and who's not versus who's valuable and who's not. And I totally agree with you. I think that's very interesting going into kind of the next section, uh, moving a chapter beyond this, we won't skip too far, but like the bit where they talk about Darrow's contract and he kind of equates it to a form of slavery, Mm -hmm. right? Where he's like, well, you're really just kind of changing the name on this. I'm still just a a tool. I'm not, I'm a means to an end, not a person. I think it's sort of integral to how this book was probably written and conceived. A note here too, before we, we get to the pissing part of the chapter, there's like Darrow does want to tell Roke things or wants to tell his friends things in general, kind of like he's, he's having this kind of like mental debate with himself. Like only if you knew um, kind of to himself, Mm -hmm. but Roke also is like peeling him apart. Like, come on, like you pushed everyone away, like Severo, me, Mustang, like look, look how you treated Mustang. And I feel like that's a, that's a standout bit. It is a standout bit. What do you think happened with Mustang? I think that gets revealed later. Do you? I think it does later, later in this reading, like in, in our yeah, reading. Yeah. So, so go ahead you can talk about what's later in the reading. Uh, where essentially she begs him not to go to the academy and says like the other choice is me. And he explicitly chooses the academy over her. I think that's probably what he's describing here. Maybe there's more to it. So the, the thing that I would say is Mustang in particular, I agree with you in terms of the context of what we're given later in the chapter. Because of his choice to go to the Academy, what do you think Mustang did for two years? Where's Mustang at? I mean, we know that she's under Octavia. She's on Loon doing political stuff. Yeah. We, we know that by the end of it. And is not in contact with her father. I think probably just focusing on... Her career. I don't think waiting for Darrow, but I don't think necessarily moving on either. Um, okay. I think the Jackal saying something like at, at one point he says like who she's sleeping with or like who's sharing the bed with her or whatever. And I think that was more of a goat, more of just kind of a taunt and a bluff because I, I don't think she's one to move on that quickly. I mean, two years is a bit. Two years is a bit, but they were together for longer than that. No, the Institute was less like a little bit over a year. And then and then there's the time. Oh, between? Between. Sure. There, that's short. How short? Uh, a couple of months, I think. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from. She doesn't seem like somebody who would move on and make a meaningful connection with anybody that readily. Cool. I'm, I'm excited to see, though. Like I, I'm really kind of lost on what to think about Mustang right now. Interesting. What's super interesting to me, too, is that Mustang is Bingham's favorite character. Yeah. <laughs> and to be so grounded in that character and to not see her in the, these first 50 pages really is interesting. Mm-hmm. So we move on to chapter four, Fallen. There's a lot of great pros and small moments of world building right on page 26, such as after the fall of the Indian Empire, one of the last great nations to stand against gold. What dread those natural-born humans must have felt to see the conquerors falling from the sky. Man for perfected, but bringing chains instead of hope. There's a lot of like great segments. We get the idea of like the way that 
the conquering happened and that the world sort of ended in kind of a big picture way, but it's also all contained within a paragraph. We also get an account on the next page um, of the damage being done by the Sons of Ares from Pliny. They seem to have grown more aggressive over the last two years. What'd you kind of make of that? Or maybe it's just seemingly more aggressive. So it seems more aggressive because I don't think it's the Sons of Ares. And they, they make a note of that. Like this isn't their MO. I think Darrow makes a note. No, of it, no, no, right? no. Um, or maybe Leto does. I think, yeah, I think that's it. It's not Darrow explicitly because Darrow's not talking at that point because he hasn't been addressed. I think it's Leto. So it's interesting. It's interesting how particularly interested in Ares Nero is. Not not in the way that like interested in what's happening, but interested specifically in who Ares is. And in a way that's uncharacteristic to someone who's genuinely concerned. Like when when there's the comment that Ares could be a woman, like he seems really kind of agitated at that prospect. And that's a weird prospect to be agitated at. Totally, I'm, totally. I'm, it's making me... All right. Bold, unprecedented prediction here. Nero knows the sons of Ares and who who they are and has conversations and discussions with them. Maybe isn't an ally, but maybe is maybe sees some value in their existence. Because but he's losing political hold with Octavia. Now. Yeah. Now, but for years, no he wasn't. So so I'm thinking for for years there was sort of an unspe- un <laughs> specified alliance between the two where they're not really working together but they're not getting in each other's way because there's some somehow some mutual benefit to both existing i i don't know i haven't i i don't know enough about it but like that just the way he spins around in his chair and like sort of snaps like what makes you think she's what makes you think aries is a woman something like it, it seemed so out of place in a conversation like that and uh Maybe it's just patriarchy and sexism, but I, it seems like that's not really a trait of the gold society in general, considering the sovereign is a woman. So it, I don't know. It just seemed weird and made me think that there's something fishy going on there. That's definitely fair. Um, for the record, I need to adjust my previous statement. It wasn't Lido, it was Pliny, uh, mm-hmm. who actually did have the information. But with you on the perspective of Perhaps Nero has insight into the Sons of Ares. Hmm. And I understand where you're coming from with that. I feel like part of it, too, is that less that maybe Augustus knows Ares and more that Augustus understands the type of person that Ares is. Okay, I would adjust personally for the psychology of Ares because I feel like there's a similarity to rulers and those like claiming a throne you know like there's a similarity in terms of those who strive for power and so i think that he's he thinks about it that way because that's the way he thinks about everything yeah no that's totally totally valid i'm just yeah i'm just explaining where my thought process went the other part um i i love i love all the dialogue between the four of them like just kind of having these general discussions darrow's obviously kind of quiet in the background we do get, obviously, you mentioned the swivel moment. Leto's the one who suggests, and maybe we should talk about Pliny and Leto first before we jump in too much further. Is it Pliny um, or Pliny? Pliny. Okay. Is the way that the audiobook narrator says it, which is yeah. what I go with, but 
right? I just know Pliny is is biblical, isn't it? Like Pliny the Younger and Pliny the Elder, which is also beer, a very important beer, Pliny the Elder within the American like IPA scene. I've never actually heard anyone other than like beer people talk about that name out loud. So it very well could be Pliny, but I've always heard it as Pliny. So for for people that don't know, uh, Pliny the Elder was really the first really big American double IPA. Like that, it was it was a groundbreaker within that scene, and it's still really highly sought after because of that. Uh, just because of the prestige and heritage of it. Pliny the Younger, uh, also by, so this is uh, Russian River Brewing Company out of Santa Rosa, California. Pliny the Younger was their triple IPA. Yeah, so Pliny is a is a politico for all intents and purposes who surrounds himself with powerful people so as to enact his kind of own machinations and aspiring for power, right? <laughs> is the perspective we get over the course of these chapters. We get perspective from Victra. We get perspective from Adrius later. Uh, and we, we kind of get perspective everywhere on Pliny being a piece of shit out to make sure that Darrow does not succeed. That will be confirmed later as like actual motivation against Darrow from the Jackal. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. He he not only confirms it, but he, he says it was going on in the last book even, mm-hmm. which is even you know, crazier to consider that we're able to kind of rewrite some, well, not even rewrite, but we're able to look back at some of those events and be like, yeah, obviously the governor was doing this, but why was the governor doing it? Oh, because Pliny kind of told him to, to some degree. He was like, maybe you should kill Darrow because he's being a problem. So I I do find that interesting. What's also interesting is Leto. And how do you feel about him? I don't, I, I, I feel like I don't know enough. It, it, he felt like much more of a background character. Really, Darrow even says that he likes him, that he's an honest man. Right, that but unlike but, a lot of the but other there's not as much like description grounded. about it. Like I, I don't like. Yes, there's praise from Darrow about him. There was way less di- dialogue and way less like actual interaction with him that I, I don't. I don't have a good read myself. That's, that's fair. What I think is really interesting about Leto, if if it were my perspective, is that he is the one to ask sort of the different or confronting questions, especially in this scenario, right. where he asks, you know, like, why do you assume that Ares is a man? It could be a woman. It could be a group of people. You're, you're making a large assumption by assuming it's a man because it could be decentralized or it could be someone who's completely undermining the hierarchy for a different reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Augustus, like, freaks out and Pliny's like, well, or data, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, well, why do you assume that he's a red? <laughs> Which is... Just another great assumption is like we assume that he's red because Darius red color red because it attacked the mines first. Like, why do you make the assumption that he's red? So I think that Leto asks a lot of the questions that is the the heel within the boardroom. Oh, totally, totally. I also think that Leto asks a lot of sort of listener questions, reader questions, which is to say like who is Ares? And he kind of is like the audience's proxy to ask that question to the characters where it's like, well, I don't think it's that. And we kind of get like a, there's an interesting like meta dialogue here. I'm with you. Totally with you on that. Kind of like that. Um, We spend a lot of time with Nero here in this chapter, which I think is interesting compared to the previous books. We see him as an executioner and then kind of Darrow's way out, but a reluctant way out of the situation that he's in. 
how how do you feel about Nero or Nero Nero in this section chapter? He is so driven by transaction. There's okay. there's so little actual like emotional attachment to anything, which I, I think I kind of expected based on his um the the fact that he didn't greet his children after the institute right away and instead mm-hmm. immediately discussed Darrow being a lancer for him. Like everything is about status and power and transaction. And I mean that's that kind of feeds into the psychology of the jackal and the comment that you really, really liked from the previous book of like humans are always negotiating. Like that that seems like something that was entirely learned from his father. Like there there is and, and to a certain extent, he's not wrong, but it's a very cold way to look at things and a very transactional way to look at things within the world. Yeah, I, I think what's also really interesting is we, we kind of got some interesting perspective on Virginia's mother from the previous book, right? Like we know that she killed herself. I don't remember that at all. So it's a it's a small description that kind of goes by the wayside when they're originally talking Um post like in the cave section they're they're talking about it okay and so she she talks about how her mom went to like great lengths to try but then i think jumped off a cliff i I think is effectively what she did or threw herself off a cliff so now that we have the additional perspective of her being the wife of nero it's interesting Mm -hmm. i could see that as it goes like it's it's very very like in- influential to some degree to the way that their entire family thinks about everything transactionally, right? Like Virginia and like Leto, Leto, Leto is set up to be the replacement to some degree uh, for Adrius and Virginia, even though like Virginia was successful instead of the Institute, not as successful. Darrow was also set up to potentially be a replacement. Mm-hmm. And he does look at everything super transactional. I think that's a good read on the whole situation. But I think he's also he's very contemplative, more so than he appears in the beginning of the first novel, where it seems like he's almost just extreme. But in reality, he just like didn't care. It was just another slave execution. I also think the line that he mentions about Lorne is really important, regardless to either like Lorne's perspective or Nero's and the way that Nero thinks about Lorne. A fool pulls the leaves. A brute chops the trunk. A sage digs the roots, which Nero says his father engraved in New Thebes. And just great. It's it, I mean, A, it's like a great line. It's how do you how do we handle Aries? Like this is how you handle the Aries, handle Aries. You take it from the ground up. And I think it also speaks to the way that like Nero Nero is a much more level headed person than maybe we gave him credit for originally. Yeah. I I, I don't think he's like no I I, I don't think that um contradicts anything that i've said he's definitely contemplative and he's definitely like somebody who makes decisions with the like he makes informed decisions but that information that he seeks is less is very much focused on what will benefit him the most he's he's just a he's a very good fleshed out character here and we shouldn't we shouldn't like him we shouldn't have any sort of like opinion that's positive of him because he's a piece of shit and he abandoned Darrow. but <laughs> you know like he's he's got kind of a rational approach to things no, like he's no, got it, a very like grounded approach he's very rational and he's very logical yeah. 
Especially someone in charge of a fucking planet. He has to be. Like, it'd be so difficult to not be that. I think it'd be impossible to to lead entirely on emotion on a planetary scale would be impossible. Then we get the guillotine. And Darrow is completely cut loose from his lancership under the House Augustus. And he's going to, I mean, his contract is going to be auctioned off to the highest bidder. It's kind of compared to slavery, like we talked about earlier, and it's an interesting fine line that that contract makes, especially in context and the way that kind of even Darrow addresses it outwardly with plenty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the contract's going to be cut off in three days. He's completely going to remove. He confronts Augustus about it. How do you feel? I mean, this is on the heels of him getting just fucking decimated by the Bologna clan, right? Yep. Embarrassing Nero. Yeah. Because it was filmed. So that's the part where he gets cornered by, what, seven of them? Yeah, exactly seven of them. Because it was a seven-on-one ship battle. Turns into a one-on-seven-person battle. And he's already got a broken... Isn't that a great duality? Exactly. I mean, he's already got a broken arm. He's got, like, cracked ribs and, what, like a bum knee or something like that? Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Uh, Cagna or whatever... Cag, I think it's Cagna. Has oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's okay, but, but it's, or he's okay, but she's got the bum knee. Like, he, he, he goes through all of, and he notices, yes, he's, he's noticing all the weaknesses. Like, we sort of start to see the inner thoughts of Darrow before a fight, like, really the tactician in him finding the weaknesses and, like, figuring out where to attack first and what, what to do. And then as he's starting, he's, like, suddenly realizing all of his shortcomings and his weaknesses that are really holding him back. Oh, yeah. So it was a broken arm, cracked ribs, and like swollen eye socket. Yep, yep. And then Cagna has the limp in her left knee. Uh, One of them was like on the heels, so he saw that they were scared of him. He does a great job of describing like each of them and their like particular thing that he can exploit. He does a good job like fighting, you know, like he sweeps the leg of Cagna mm-hmm. and like tries to batter some of the other people down based on their weaknesses, but he doesn't have the strength or effort because he's broken and you know. Right. And it's just- seven of them. And they're not they're not fighting one on one and like they're they're all going at once. Like I, I think that was explicitly commented on like they're they're not they're not facing him one by one like they're very intentionally all swarming him and fighting all at the same time you're right you're right obviously there's a comment on that i just don't remember exactly how it was worded they all like came in on him at the same time he actually like tried to engage to some degree to like get it over with it reminds me did you did you watch the daredevil show Mm, the first season for sure and i think part of the second season well okay the second season third season were well Second season was okay. First season, first and third season were the best easily. The third season is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. It's worth prefacing that my favorite superhero is also Daredevil. Well, I mean, you're both legally blind, so fine. <laughs> <laughs> all, all told, it reminded me of the sort of like slug fights that Daredevil has that are like single, the single cut fights where he'll just be like fighting a hall, a hallway of people yeah. or like a stairwell of people. For like five minutes straight and it's all one shot not five minutes but like three minutes straight the, the point being it reminded me of those kind of like planned out sort like i have to do this this fight this and then eventually he starts to like lose his grip and he's he's lost he gets beaten down 
Carnage starts talking to him like a piece of shit and the pissing, which is mm-hmm. perhaps a theme. You know, Cassius got pissed on. Mm, so now was it, it was Cassius, wasn't Darrow it? Darrow gets pissed on. Who gets pissed on in the next book, PJ? Mustang, but it's a fetish thing. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Different. Um, so I, I also find it interesting. Carnus, obviously, in the group of seven, are able to kill Darrow in this moment, but he's owned by Cassius because of the blood feud. Even though it's between families, Carnus still, even as the older brother understands, the oldest brother, he understands that it's Cassius's right to kill him. I think it, it felt less like that. And more like we're intentional. Like they, they even say, like we're we're gonna beat the shit out of you, but we won't kill you because that will actually start a war. Because because they can't actually murder him, and they they, they will get hunted down. That. Like they, that seemed like the more pressing thing. Yes, I would agree. I would say it's probably seventy or eighty that, and ten to twenty. Cassius deserves to kill you. Like it's it's definitely there, but that's a part of the overriding value of them understanding that they shouldn't kill him. But yeah, so Carnus now introduced in the flesh is massive, but his dialogue, unlike like we had talked about some of the things with Pax previously, like his dialogue was like warm, kind of like a larger than life person who's going to welcome you in as long as you're an honorable person. Carnus has this sort of like sharp dialogue that's, I don't know, it's cold. It's, it's disconcerting. It's, it's definitively him. But it's so it's so good. I, I really like the way that Carnus is written in dialogue form. Yeah. He's He's sadistic. He is he is like super villain level description. Like it, it he he was described like a supervillain, I felt like. Like the the absurd size paired with just unparalleled intelligence and capacity for like rage i'd agree the capacity for rage is a really good read into it do you have any other thoughts on the uh the pissing mm, it was poetic i mean it is kind of like poetic justice it was poetic but what, i can't did they mention cassius getting pissed on no 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 but i feel like it's it's kind it, it, of but an did, oblique did they connection. know about it uh a lot of well that's a good question i don't I mean, I assume Carnus would because brothers, they probably talk about it. Mm, no, I don't think I don't think I don't think Cassius would have. Uh, uh, but I know. But the Bologna house is highly connected and was probably in possession of the like ability to view the footage from the rings throughout the institute. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, and I, I. Yeah, yeah. They're they're drafters. I think they're on the drafter stream. I definitely agree with you. They're, they're not viewing it live time or anything like that, like Augustus. Was. I can't imagine. I can't imagine that would go unpublished. Yeah. Well, I no. There's no way. The drafters stream is not public. Knowledge. No, but it is family knowledge. Yes. Yeah. So it would go back to the the Bologna household. Yeah. I totally yeah. agree with you on that. Yeah. 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 I, I was just more thinking like it's not. It's not strict. No, it's yeah. not. Like I, I don't think it's known by society in general, but I think. I think they knew about what had happened to their brother kind of on Darrow's watch to a certain extent. Because at that point, he was he was kind of the secondary leader, right? That Cassius was following. I'm trying to think like what there was so much that happened 
early on within House Mars. I'm trying to think of like what the actual sort of internal political structure looked like when that happened. When Cassius was peed on? Yeah. It was it was Titus. Titus was the like the official leader of the house, but Darrow. Well, he wasn't. He, well, he not, wasn't the not official, official leader. But, so there were four factions, right? Like, so it was the four faction part of the house, where Severo's one faction, Antonia and her folks are one faction, Titus and the majority of the house are that faction, and Darrow and close friends like Roke. Cassius like was was that's that's sort of what I'm getting at. Cassius was yeah. effectively being led by Darrow when that happened. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But the shame is on Cassius. It, not the shame is on Cassius. Darrow. But from a family perspective, the blame is on Darrow. So I'm I'm wondering if it was in, like I, I I'm genuinely just wondering if if that was an intentional thing calling back to that moment or if it was just kind of a humiliation kind of deal that happened to line up with what happened to their brother. I feel like it's just a general humiliation thing. Okay. But I think there's a dramatic irony is not the right word. There's an irony to them both like having these moments of humiliation. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It's it's interesting for sure. So we move on to chapter five and Darrow is once again free and back in the pool of available candidates. We we get on the um the sort of like mission ship with Tactus that we talked about earlier, where him like the three versus the ten days. The chance of Darrow becoming a praetor of an entire fleet has shrunk since he's turned away from Lorne at the very beginning uh, of the uh, Institute. There's the moment with the Bolognas, obviously with Cassius, where it's like a no-go there because of everything else that's gone on. And then Augustus is now shaming him. So he's kind of lost the three houses of Mars to some degree, you know? So we, we can talk more about that, but that's kind of a baseline I love the little vignette that we get here as well. I think it made kind of a perfect TV show scene relating to uh, Julia Bologna and like her her whole thing of like sitting at the dinner table waiting for the head to be and delivered. There's no way that's true. It's so good. It is so good, but there's no way that's actually what she does every single night. Like that that mm. screams of maybe like storytelling and exaggeration from slaves within the house that got out somehow so so i just embellishment i I don't think it's embellishment at all i i i understand where you're coming from where it kind of like feels that way i believe it happened once but for it to happen every single night it's just absurdity what, what i would what i would counter pj is do you remember oh god what's her name lady stark What's her fucking name? I'm thinking Lady Greyheart because that's that's the that's it in the novels. Um, Ned Stark's wife, um, right? Catelyn. Catelyn. So she is a stickler on the death of her children. Yeah, but she doesn't sit there every. Uh, st- I think she does in the back of her head. In every the back time of her head, she's not physically. Any- but she doesn't have the same sort of. I I just see I see her as a close like Catelyn Stark to some degree. Um, but not not honorable. I, I feel like it's more of a more of a pride thing than whereas Catelyn, I think, has like an honor code. Okay. It feels it feels similar from the relational aspect. But yeah, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. Like it does feel like an exaggeration, but at the same time, if it were happening every day, day over day for so long, it would be grating. And that's where you would see someone like Cornus, who's generally prideful, a bit of a bully, of course, 
go and like the entire family be like beat the shit out of him knowing that he's going to eventually die and like have that be okay in their heads because they're just like whatever you're you're gonna lose it doesn't fucking matter i'm gonna beat the shit out of you eventually cassius will deliver your head we'll all eat again i don't know i i understand where you're coming from i just feel like it could be her and i feel like it would be a very good uh like vignette short story oh yeah it would be absolutely absolutely it would be but it, it was it was what? so dramatic so over the top dramatic and so shakespearean it, it i i agree with you it reminded me actually like my first thought rereading it this time was the red queen from the new alice in wonderland played by helena bonham carter mm-hmm. uh in the way Who, that she like sits there seriously such a good actor like she is so good yeah. In everything yeah. I've seen her in. I could literally imagine her as Julia Bologna, and she fits perfectly. The, what have I done to deserve such a hateful family? And then just, like, walking off yeah. with with her empty, like, silver platter for not delivering the head the heart. of Darrow. The heart. Like, or the heart, sorry. I just, it, I can just crystallize can that vision in my head. Absolutely. Now that's all I want. Yeah. All I right. want it's, is it's her to perfect. be. What? Yeah. Oh man, she's so it's, good. It literally perfect. Okay, so we we also get kind of the conversation where we discussed uh, like Tactus kind of doing the quarter turn away with the the flight back. Like he's got the three day versus the ten day argument where he's arguing for Darrow. I feel like it as we talked about before. It exposes kind of Tactus's character where he's he is kind of he's got elements of Titus. He's got elements of that same sort of like pride and sort of I I mean I I saw will built in. Just the way it was spoken, it seemed not to be any sort like you you have it sort of noted as a quarter turn away from Darrow. And I don't think that's what it is. I I, I felt genuinely like this was him being fully on Darrow's side and fully loyal to him and believing that he'll get as far as physically possible and believing that limit is 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. And especially with his like association with Darrow, he also has to like gauge the fact that in 10 days if Darrow dies and he's only seen as a lieutenant of Darrow, he also has to measure himself up against like that image mm-hmm. and what that looks That's like true. too. So he's, he's kind of like, it's almost like he's like, yeah, no, you, you're going to last 10 days because that'll give me enough time to like negotiate and into whatever the next <laughs> thing is. There's a degree of that. Like, it's not entirely yeah, that. No, you're right. There's a little bit there of that is. there. Um, we also get a nice, we also get that kind of quiet moment between him and Mustang at the Institute from the end that we'd referenced earlier, which hurts the soul, yep. wherein Mustang obviously loves Darrow and Darrow cannot and she, surrender. She knows that he doesn't love her with all of his heart i don't remember exactly right. like the i think the phrase yeah, was yeah, that she, 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 she knows that he hasn't given her all of him yet which which is i i think at the time related to sex more than anything else uh i didn't read it that way um so i read it more I did, as I, like he he cannot give away his entire heart until he lets eo go and eo is still so present in his heart I definitely see that. I also think there's an element of sort of like inherent, like, well, we didn't have sex to like okay. consummate anything. I could see that. That he has because I he kind of that. has like, if you consider the sort of like Irish 
theme of red yeah. to begin with. He's got kind of the like Catholic religiosity about him when it comes to sex and relationships. Yeah. So that's true. I, that's I just kind of like I feel that tension. Yeah. And I mean, with that perspective, reading it that way, it makes total sense. And maybe it was intentionally left a little bit ambiguous because it's probably we also both. Learned, <laughs> yeah, it, it is probably both for sure. We also learned a little bit about the Citadel, which is on Loon, Luna, uh, the moon, Earth's moon, which is kind of the capital of society in which the Citadel actually does not allow duels or bloodshed or even blood feuds unless they're agreed to by Octavia. So he should be safe for the entire period as long as he's on the ground. Um, we get some beautiful, moving into chapter six, we get some like great world world building right off the bat. All these massive skyscrapers that only feel possible in Loon due to the low gravity, um, which is fascinating and like the ability to like build larger because the low gravity is interesting to me. The concept of swaying, I think, is still a thing. <laughs> so I, I question some of the decisions of uh, of architects, but that's not something addressed by Pierce Brown. Yep. I, I also find it interesting that Tactus called out previously in the last chapter and kind of prattled about Darrow not being good with a razor. He asks, Darrow asks Roke if he wants to spar and like do around a cravat. Yeah. And I think it might have been around here where they start talking about uh, where uh, his sort of trademark style of cravat was so sought after and so dominant but there's a there's a quote that says people would literally offer him moons like deeds to moons moons for a week of training in his style of cravat from him yeah the the willow way right because it's 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 cool because it paints a picture of the rage knight to us but also like we know that he does something unique and he's incredible and that's why he's like made this image of himself as an Olympic knight over 60 years, which for gold, I never, I, like, I, I didn't realize he was that lifespan. old. You didn't realize no. he was that old without like breaking any sort of metrics. I feel like they've talked about him being over a hundred years old. I, I think it's, I think it's a small mention where he's like talking about the years of age and it's like, he was a rage knight for 60 years. He obviously didn't get into the Institute until he was 20, etc. And so like, it all kind of like feeds into this aspect of like, well, if you start to add shit up, like there's no way that he's under a hundred. It just makes me want to. Like, it just makes me wish he would have chosen to go along with Lauren, right? Yeah, right. Like you kind of, you kind of <laughs> wish like you'd get like a, I don't know, like a flashback montage. Would have been so cool. I totally agree with you. Lauren is just such a cool like character and talked about a lot. I actually added that in predictions. We'll get there. So I also um, okay. Yep. We'll get there. Go ahead. We'll get there. Yeah. Well, we we can talk a lot a lot more about Lauren in the end. I like Theodora's kind of banter here with the other pink we talked about earlier. Um, they kind of get into an argument over the room and everything else, and like leading off to uh, Victor's room. Uh, we get the conversation about the rose, which we talked about. But I kind of like the the sort of like dominant nature that Theodora suddenly wields against the other pink. I find it find it interesting. Oh, it's it was hilarious. Yeah. And. Like Darrow saying something, Darrow saying something along the lines of uh, like, you're like, what? having fun. And she's her, mm-hmm. her responding, like, you've got to flex the muscles that you've got, even if everything else yeah. is drooping. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was great. That was great. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially because we kind of get that like timeline on roses only being allowed to be roses for so long. So 
Victra. Victra, Victra, Victra. She is obviously related to Antonia, which is potentially problematic. How how do you address your thoughts around Victra? I think the problem of being a attached relativity, the problem of being related to Antonia, I think is a red herring. Okay. Um, I don't think it matters. And I, I think she's trying to be as genuine as possible. She seems much more mature. And maybe a little bit. I, I she probably has the the ability to be a little bit conniving and a little bit selfish and manipulative, but I, I don't think she's malicious. I, I haven't gotten that sort of read on her yet. So I, I I am tentatively but confidently trusting her to be who she is, at least mostly on the surface. I don't, I don't, I I think the fact that she is familially attached to Antonia is, is there to like, sow some distrust. And I, I don't think it's warranted or earned. Interesting. Interesting. No, I, I, I dig that. I feel like it's it's a combination of kind of like overlap of Darrow's perspective on Antonia and then overlapping that against Victra. And Victra like counters that with the conversation of thinking about Antonia as like the she-wolf that literally gnawed her way out of their mother. <laughs> you know, like there's there's that whole thing where it's like she was literally such a fucking asshole, you know, piece of shit sister that very clearly like they've left impacts on each other but not positive and so i i think that it's interesting i still feel like there's that baseline questioning that exists another subtle reference about the future and relationships and other things like that that we talked about the fact that like victra's that this one is much more explicit but like victra's mother like not being monogamous and like having multiple children with multiple dads intentionally is Interesting, and I think a benefit to the story. And also kind of gives some credibility to her to be open about it. Because mm-hmm. that, that seems like something that people of the Gold Society would maybe hide if they wanted to present their best selves. So to be mm-hmm. open about infidelity, not necessarily infidelity, but non-traditional family structures seems more Bold because of how straight-laced the society tends to be. <clears throat> yeah, I I definitely definitely agree. I think that is an interesting quandary inside of the family itself. So in terms of the story between Darrow and Tactus, I really like kind of this like high note as it relates to Tactus, where like Darrow took half of his savings and bought an old Stradivarius from Quicksilver. If you don't know anything about Stradivariuses, they are an incredibly rare form of violin. I am going to look up a Stradivarius violin right now. I can't imagine that you can get them for less than several million dollars. Oh. For like a yeah. brand new. Um, If you could even, if, if they're even available. A Stradivarius is going to be the most expensive violin that you could ever buy, ever use, ever. And Darrow spends half of his total fortune, which is not a whole lot of money. He He's spending half of his fortune to try to like build favor and build a friendship with Tactus because of the way that his like siblings broke his violin early in his life. 
but they he ultimately doesn't respect that and sells the violin and instead goes and sleeps with pinks and buys drugs for the, for the which cost. gets so it's like gets rationalized later saying like he doesn't respond well to any sort of act because he feels like it requires reciprocation um but that's still like darrow doesn't know that at the time and obviously that right. fucking hurts it's it's definitely tough you know like there's there's no other way to put it right D- darrow is definitely offended and hurt but i think what's interesting to pull out of that is like tactus obviously has a utilitarian perspective to some degree because he's like I'd, i i don't care about the violin but you did give me money if I sell my violin for the things that I want. And so I'm just going to do the things that I want. And I, I feel like that feeds into the sort of like pixie nomenclature for him or bronzy nomenclature. Yeah. So I also think that Victor does a really good job of revealing some of the things that Pliny knows about playing this game in the background, all the way back to helping Nero manipulate the Institute in the favor of the Jackal. He's got really big plans up his sleeves. We'll talk about them later, but I think it's important to like just make mention of it right now. In post, Victra also recommends and is like, you need to meet this person off of Citadel grounds, which is, you know, where something bad could happen <laughs> to him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's spooky. Um, at this point, who did you think he was going to see? Like, did you have any precognition? I considered cutting off the section here, but I decided the conversation after is worth I, my thoughts were it was going to be Dancer or it was going to be the Jackal. I, I was really hoping it was going to be Dancer pretending to be somebody else or, or being whoever he is when he's not within the Sons of Ares somehow. But secondarily, I I thought the Jackal would make sense. And that turned out to be true. I don't really have a good reason why I thought that. I guess because he's sort of the rogue agent of things, and this seems to be the place where people that are rogue agents that are well-connected could go. Sure. But obviously, it's dangerous for him at this point. Oh, yeah. Of course. But that that also sort of leans into the sort of way Luna is structured, and that there, there's a little bit more safety for golds. Even though it's probably not safer for the other colors. Huh. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that kind of idea going into the next chapter. You've been no like suspicious precognitions of Victra at all. Um Did you think she do you think that she is operating against Darrow's interests? No. Or is I he, don't think she's operating okay. against it. I don't necessarily think she's operating towards it either though. Sure. I, th- I think when you say towards it, are you talking about like she, the she's, sons of Ares? No, no, no. Or, I mean, she's she's not that? necessarily. I think she's out for herself, and she's not necessarily out to like harm Darrow, but she's not explicitly doing anything that will benefit him if it doesn't also benefit her. Okay. Okay. Like yeah, I I think he is her ally, so she won't do anything that will explicitly like put him in danger. But I don't think she'll like intentionally do things to bolster his position either without also bolstering her own. Sure. Sure. Like it, it seems mm. it seems more ally, but not friend. Okay. If that makes sense. 
It totally does. It's it, it it's a fine line to drive, especially between golds and I mean Dar- like it's hard to like classify Darrow, but like golds and Darrow, like there there is a like tough line there that exists that he is constantly trying to tread where he'd like to make forward ground with friendships and relationships and other things like that, but also he can't reveal certain things because otherwise he loses everything in their hands. Mm-hmm. It's all up to them to like turn him in or not turn him in. So, right. Yeah, exactly. I totally, totally see where we're coming from. So we hit chapter seven, the last chapter that we're covering this week, which is called the afterbirth. And personally, I love how this title chat, the title of this chapter kind of feeds into the grim description of this thieves den that we eventually find ourselves into on Luna. Yeah, I, I would love to think about Afterbirth as grimy and dank, but instead <laughs> I think about it as like raw and kind of yolk-like. But I mean, you know, that sounds too tasty. Well, okay. <laughs> you think about stirring yolks out of your body and we'll, we'll come back later. <laughs> Gross. Uh, <laughs> as a side note, as a side note, the place where they end up meeting is actually an Easter egg uh, where it's it's called... Did you did you cast catch the Easter egg? So the the den that they end up being at is called Lost We Den, which is feels like Joss Whedon when you say it out loud. Oh fuck you! And no, that's not. There's intended, no <laughs> Oh, it's intended as an Easter egg. He's he's talked about it. He has so Lost right. We Den. There are is so many. There are it. so many more clear Easter eggs that are not explicitly like laid out as easter eggs like what we talked about earlier with the connection with ender, with ender. yep did he did he explicitly say or, that or those are easter eggs yeah Akbar. that too yeah did he did he ever come out and say that those are easter eggs oh yeah he's a hundred percent said that like okay he, especially in the first then i feel books, less like bad he, about it because that is such yeah. a weak thing <laughs> <laughs> lost we 10 was something that a couple of fans picked up on and they asked him on twitter and he was like yep i totally meant that <laughs> to be joss whedon um because he was a big fan of buffy growing up so i'm actually so i am i'm in the third season right now of buffy i've been re i've been watching it for the first time ever and the first two seasons are exactly what you'd expect out of like modern um like WBCW TV. Like they're they're like poppy thriller horror, but they they invented it. Like they were the first show to do it. So there's there's that trouble. So but the third season gets a lot better. Like it's it's crazy how different the third season feels versus the first season. Right, this isn't a buffy podcast. But, Let's continue. Yeah, it's it's cool. But anyway. Uh, Lost Whedon, Joss Whedon. Yeah, it's it's good. We got it. Go talk about fuck it. yourself. So <laughs> I love I love the introduction line between uh, the so obviously like Darrow's moving into the space. He's been um, disguised as an obsidian. Like his glyphs are covered and everything like that on his hand. Mm-hmm. He walks up to this booth. He's he's hanging out. There's a stain nearby, and fucking the dude at the booth says reaper even milton knew lisper was a petty son of a bitch and just like calls him out the jackal is just so jazzed to see and meet darrow again mm-hmm. in real life yeah like he's it, he's treating him like a happy go lucky celebrity it's just it's so interesting and fascinating from from the jackal's perspective i think it 
it seems more like this is his way of telling him that he can kind of let his guard down a little bit because this is we don't know it at this point but this is his establishment and it seemed more more like a subtle or not subtle but um more of a way of expressing that they can be themselves a little bit without explicitly yeah. saying you don't have to hide yourself totally totally i love that about this part it, it it's it's especially like Darrow comes into it thinking like he has to hide himself um, because he's obviously being concealed. And he sits down at the table and he's like, well, you're fucking being obvious. <laughs> so, like, why am I hidden? Like, right. <laughs> what the fuck is this? Which at the same time is like Darrow's hiding because Darrow is wanted, you know? Yeah, exactly. Jack wasn't wanted, so. Right. Yeah. Good point. I I also, like, love the dueling conversation here. The, the sort of, like, verbal jousting can get especially in like poor writers hands very bad and like very boring but i really like kind of their back and forth dialogue here wherein like the jackal lets something go and then darrow bites back and then and darrow lets something go and the jackal bites back over the course of this entire conversation yeah it's definitely definitely a dance yeah yeah we we had mentioned earlier like the conversation about Mustang sleeping with someone else. There's a whole point, which I think is actually a primal point of like the building tension that happens in the scene where Darrow asks, what do you want? The Jackal replies, your head. We get like three fucking paragraphs of prose at, at them like staring at themselves and looking at the room. Yeah. And then Darrow breaks the tension by saying you have a weird sense of humor and j- the jackal laughs like, it's, it was a it was a joke <laughs> but, but but we knowing the jackal thought that it might have been a cannibalism thing you, you know like you can never anticipate what the jackal thinks or is going to do so i i found that really interesting and fascinating yeah you know if like luke were able to sit down with with darth vader in episode two and be like well what are you up to you'd be like well you know i'm just trying to bomb all the bases that you're at you know, because like you're my son. Wink, wink. Is it, are you saying that Darrow is? Oh no, 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 no. Un- unrelated, unrelated, unrelated entirely. I'm like Luke Skywalker is like trying to. He's trying to wink like Luke Skywalker into the right. The direction. jackal is actually Darrow's father no. who didn't actually no, 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 die. But, but I, I do, I do overall think it's very interesting that like this whole conversation happens to begin with, and it does it. It has a like it is very different. I I know that like I made the comparison previously to sort of the sinister nature of Darth Vader in the first book where it's like he's very absent. But now the Jackal in in this story so far, he's like very upfront. He's he is like he's a political figure more than anything else. He's like taking over connection relays and like he works inside of that space with his silent partner. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's very interesting, very different. Right. Yeah. Jackal also knows and understands like Pliny's plans that he had inside of the Institute and is very aware. Because he was a he was a victim of it as well. Of course. Yeah. So yeah, no, I I really like the point that's made there with their conversation with um about Pliny and Leto. Right, because Leto himself is a good person and he and he believes himself good and he does good work and Daryl likes him because he's commendable. But Pliny in the background is puppeteering him to be way better than he is and to be manipulatable going forward. It's not Leto's fault that he's going to end up this way. It's it's Pliny's. 
yeah jackal is very upset about that which you know makes sense yeah, yeah. tracks with him so jackal understands knows plenty's plan leto is meant to be the heir darrow cut out of the way we understand that based on the previous conversations i also think the picture in the last page of the chapter that we talked about with octavia and the crime syndicate with her is interesting that the highest levels of government sees fit to control the low colors through other means and manipulate other things outside their control i feel like is a very sinister thing but i think it makes total sense Oh, to- it totally makes sense. I- I'm just saying it's it's a very interesting thing to get introduced here. Why do you think it's introduced here now? Um, I think because it's the jackal. Because the jackal is the way this... All right, all right, hear me out. So the sort of idea that's being presented is there's the government and then there's the sort of underbelly of society that mm-hmm. maybe those of the lower castes are disillusioned by the ruling of the government and turn to the underbelly as like their actual moral compass because they seem more on their level. And if they're controlled by the same person, then it's just two sort of means of controlling the same person by by the same entity. Um, so my thought here is... Darrow is has been outcast by the arch governor and is now sort of falling into favor a little bit potentially with the jackal who's his son and who has so much to gain by gaining the favor of his father more than he does by fighting against him so it it, it makes me think that Darrow's falling into some sort of similar trap in that Nero is still pulling the strings and still controlling what Darrow is doing, even though it's by technically a different branch. Totally. That's good. That's where I'm coming. Yeah, that, that that's a really good thought. I, I think it's it's hard to pick apart because I think that it's you're you're on to something with the jackal with Octavian Wait, with well, Nero. What else does the Jackal want? All the Jackal wants is the approval of his father and to basically be reinstated as the heir. And I feel like his best course of action to do that would be to do something with Darrow. Right, especially after Darrow's dethroned as the heir. Right, exactly. So uh, to, to kind of end the conversation on our reading this week and everything else, we, we've got one final kind of point, which is the Jackal is saying, based on what we're talking about, the killing blow will be to raise up lower and mid colors that are chasing after him for everything else and high colors and to elevate them so that they can destroy the sons of Ares so that the sons of Ares will be purged and that will be his methodology going forward. Mm. What'd you think? It's, a, it's kind of a dun 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 moment. Yeah. Um, I didn't necessarily read it that way. And uh, maybe that was just me being bad at reading um it seemed to me more like not necessarily that they're going to ally themselves with the sons of Ares, but that they would potentially be working alongside them as opposed to trying to destroy them or weed them out. okay but eventually they're destroying them because he does say that he's yeah. looking to destroy the sons of Ares. yeah I'm sure but so kind of like using their whatever their motives are to accomplish yep. the things exactly cool I, I don't think I don't think destroying them is a 
now goal. I think it, right. I think it's squeeze them for what they're worth right now by yeah maybe a tenuous ally. That tracks. Yeah, that tracks. Cool. Okay, so after our wrap up of the reading of the section, we're going to move forward into a new section that we're going to call. We previously called it. And we've talked about it before, etc. PJ's predictions. Now. Before we get into your specific predictions, we kind of have been toying with an idea for the section surrounding what we're going to do going forward. Do you want to explain we're it? Gambling. I'm, ga- we're gambling. I'm gambling. <laughs> and I'm gambling against Crossland. Uh, so we're, we're setting some specific questions um, regarding the next section. And I will be sort of predicting what will happen. Or what will be revealed or whatever. Um, and we're going to keep those answers written. And the next episode, we're not sure when, probably at the beginning, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. Um, essentially, what we're doing is we're gambling drinks. So if I get something right, Crossland takes a drink. And if I get something wrong, I take a drink. And if it's not discussed or not sort of mentioned within that section, it's a draw. Neither of us drink, whatever. Um, so it should make maybe a little bit more cohesion between episodes and something to, I don't know, bring some stakes and some fun to the uh, to the show a little bit. Obviously, there's already fun. And? But, and? EJ. What am I missing? Uh-oh. <clears throat> so the net point being of sort of the, the new PJ prediction section is we're going to be drinking. If PJ gets things right or wrong, if he gets them right, he no, if I will get, not be drinking. Yeah. I will be drinking. Yep, there we go. If he gets them wrong, I will be drinking. Nope, no, so no, no, I, no, 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 way, no. Uh, If I get them sorry, right, sorry, if, you drink. If I get them wrong, I drink. Right, right. right. Correct. And then if if it's not addressed within that section, neither of us do. So it, it only applies to the next section that we're reading. Because otherwise it's going to yes. be way too much to keep track of. Right, right. So like the larger general questions won't be tracked to some degree, but the, well, I'll, I might keep track of them anyway. Well, like if, we'll, if, we'll I make, if I make a prediction about Mustang and it doesn't come true until like the last section of the book, I, I'm... But I wasn't wrong. Like, I'm not keeping track several sections down the line. It's only for what happens in the next reading section. So right is you drink, wrong is I drink, and not addressed is neither of us drink. And we're not going to deal with it beyond that because that's just too much to deal with. Yeah, totally. Totally. So I I totally agree with you. So to move into the questions, though, that, that's kind of generally the rules of the system. We'll talk about it again next week. So the story is a quick intro where it left off. You know, as we'd mentioned, like Augustus will protect Darrow. You almost entirely predicted this entire fallout of the situation, including <laughs> everything that went on around it between two episodes in which you said the same opinion to me twice despite my drunken behavior. So I am taking a drink for you, my friend, <laughs> for predicting that correctly. So good work. Fair enough. There we go. So to start it off, you kicked ass with your prediction there. Um, so what if anything happened during the two-year gap? Was there anything important that occurred? Um, I, I, I think there will be stuff between Mustang and Darrow that will be um, discussed later. And I... I, I 
I don't expect it to happen the next section. Um, maybe some more. I think we're going to be get, getting subtle sort of hints of what happened throughout the entire book until towards the end when we'll have an actual conversation or a flashback, one of the two, discussing like the what happened between Darrow and Mustang. I think we're going to get kind of strung along about that. But um, I think Tactus and Darrow will bond pretty heavily because they seem pretty mm-hmm. close now. Um, and same with Roke. And maybe Roke and Tactus don't become super close friends, but they'll become closer than they were at the Institute. I think, I think those will be the big things. I, I don't, I don't know what, what's her name? Um, Antonia's sister, half sister. Victra. Victra. I kept wanting to say Victress. I think she'll kind of be a either non-existent within the first two first couple years or um a very side character that kind of gets forced to be close to them once they go to the academy okay because she does she doesn't seem like a super like emotionally connected character to them to any of them especially dara until now like that that's starting to develop now it would have developed more if they were closer before that so i don't think he really has any direct contact with cassius maybe some maybe some online trolling i could i could see that happening like darrow creates a screen name that only cassius would recognize as like a calling card for himself and like antagonizes him online on public like articles and stuff could be i i don't think darrow's that antagonistic but i know but i think he's i think he's a like late teen early 20s person i remember what i was like then it was absolutely somebody who would relish in kind of shitting on someone online (laughs) i didn't do it much like you can look through my facebook and see like maybe a handful of posts in the last decade but like i would have i would have enjoyed that and i could see him doing that yeah. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Like, if, so, if there if there yeah. was any interaction between him and Cassius, that's what it would have been. I don't think it would have been anything face to face, or of co- direct. Of course not, because of the of course of course not because the direct interaction would have been much more intense and extreme, and would have been documented right away. I think. Yep. For sure. For sure. Because of the the blood pact, like that's the whole the whole bit. Right. <clears throat> we. Inside of these sections, we also see a lot of quotes by Lorne Al Arcos thrown around. Right. What do you make of that? Like, there's like four. God, he is such a larger than life character. And it makes me think that maybe, maybe he's actually larger than what he's prepared. Like, maybe he's what he's portrayed as is beyond what he actually is. And maybe he's kind of, um, Sort of uh, figure by committee, so to speak. Lord is. I don't know. I'm I'm throwing guesses against the wall. Like <coughs> no, there, no, no, there no. are. I, it was more of like a conversation. Like, like think about Confucius like and all the yep. all the quotes attributed to him. And there's no way that they were all like one dude, but rather attributed him to him because they were unattributable. And I'm wondering if it's sure. something similar to that. <coughs> so. The only thing that I would counter there is that, like, he's a real Marcus like, Aurelius. Person. Well, no, like, not that Lorne is a real person, um, or that you know Confucius is a real person. But I mean, within the confines of the story, y- yes, 
he is alive. Right. <laughs> you know, within within the story. But I also think that uh, there, there's a lot here that's based in, and you might you might understand my general appreciation of the story. Uh, Pierce Brown is like a big advocate of the Stoics, which okay. is where I stumbled into this in the first place. Yeah. Like he himself is, and I did not realize anything else about fiction, which is how I like found him inadvertently. It was just something that he tweeted at one point and dove into this entire story and lost my mind. Okay. But he he is a huge advocate of the Stoics. And so Lauren feels closer to Marcus Aurelius which than he would Confucius. We but know, also we know, like, we it's know really good. Like directly within our social media account that Pierce Brown is a fan, to put it lightly, of Marcus Aurelius. Like specifically, we we put out a tweet that Pierce Brown responded to saying that he reads from it every morning. Yeah, right, right. So like that that tracks and makes sense and is probably correct. <laughs> You're probably right, but I'm sticking with my guess because that's how games work. Sure, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> So so here's here's the uh, here's the simple question. This is the easy one, PJ. The easy one. This is a yes or no answer. It, do you think the jackal is telling the truth about his intentions? I don't think that's an easy yes or no question. It it's yes or no, it's A or B. Yes with an asterisk. Yes, I think he <laughs> What the fuck does because, that mean? Because I think he's very good at telling the truth without telling the whole truth. I, I think he I think he is not lying about his intentions but i think he's lying about his motivation for those intentions if that like i i i think i think there's a very heavy amount of li- like lying by omission in in the way that the jackal operates in that he he is very good about telling the truth all the time but not really revealing his actual intention if that makes sense so like i, I know you're trying to make it an easy yes or no answer um, but I, I think by the nature of that character, t- the truth, quote unquote, is uh, he doesn't I, I, I don't think he's somebody who lies, but I think he does a very good job of crafting exactly the way he tells the truth to avoid giving out some probably pretty relevant information. Okay. Okay. Like he So what you just did is you took a 50-50 drink bet and you widened the margin so far that you're going to lose. I'm just okay. Kidding. If I it's have fine. to choose one, yes, he is being truthful about his intention. About his intention to which specific intention are you calling out? Which specific intention are you asking about? <laughs> <laughs> so so I the the intention that I'm thinking about is his want to claim House Augustus. Yes. Yes, I think he's absolutely interested in claiming House Augustus for himself. Without a doubt. I think he I think that's absolutely what he wants. I just don't necessarily think that means that he's against his father. That's kind of where okay. I'm coming from. Like, yes, I think that's what he wants. No, I don't think he's being completely on the honest level of where Darrow assumes he's coming from in that he's kind of going against the wishes or against the um, motion of his father's power. Does that make sense? Does that make any sense? Um, it it does. So I, I understand where you're coming from in terms of the jackal and like trying to rationalize his 
organizational thoughts. Like I, it, I it, it's, I guess it. the difference is his desire versus the path he wishes to take to get there. And mm-hmm. I think he's entirely truthful about what he desires, but I think he's, but the path, but the path is in question. Exactly. Yeah. And the alliances right. that he has are. Okay. So, so to extend your statement, do you think the path with Darrow is the way that he will take? Or do you think there's no, an alternate I, I, I path think he's, I, he's already I, taking? I think he's being entirely truthful to Darrow with what he wants, but I think what I think the, the path he of, intends to do I is think different. the path of least resistance to get what he wants is to um betray Darrow and use that as a chip for gaining fi- favor with his father. So instead of cool. using Darrow as like sort of the um the means of gaining power as an ally, he'll he'll use it as the means of gaining power as sort of a hostage or as a token, as a chip. I don't know. I don't know the best way to describe that. But it's I don't think he's intending to ally himself with Darrow. I think he's intending to betray Darrow's maybe tentative trust in a means of gaining favor favor with his father as opposed to overthrowing his father. I I think you're right. I think you're right. I think there's a core responsibility that he feels like overturned his father's regime more out of like a concern of power than anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that avoids the core question, which was the yes or no answer, which I feel like we answered later with the yes or no question about the intentions. Yes is my answer to that yes or no question. So he is telling the truth about his intentions and no, Darrow doesn't know the extent of his intentions. Correct. Right? Okay. Cool. Yeah. Final <laughs> sorry, prediction sorry, sorry question. Sorry to your simple yes no, or no. No, it was... In, well, no, I mean... Because I don't... know the most complicated yeah, character. I don't think... Beloved. He's so good. Like, no question. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It, it was more or less like it's, it's good to jog that conversation out of this, but also... Um, I'm trying to make it simple for the sake of like betting the drinks, but also like whatever whatever rolls out of the conversation. Otherwise, cool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, Aries is the final conversation point of our predictions tonight. Where are they at, and what are they up to? Where do they come into play in the story as a whole right now? I think I think he'll at least have some sort of interaction with them on Luna. So, correct yourself. Darrow, Darrow is going to interact with Ares on Luna. With Ares, some sort of um, officer of Ares, whether that's okay. Dancer or whoever. Um, I think I think Luna is the place for that to happen um, because it was. I don't know if it was explicitly stated that the Sovereign has sort of a. Um, connection to the underbelly of the society on Luna um, and whether or not that connection is the Sons of Ares. But I, I, I could, I kind of inferred that if that wasn't, I, I don't think it was explicitly stated, but it, it definitely seemed like that was the, what they were alluding to. Um, so whether or not the Sovereign is a part of the Sons of Ares, which would be really cool. Hmm. Um I don't think that's true because of the way that they were discussing um, the importance of g- gaining power. Like, I, I think if they already had that connection, they wouldn't have been pushing for Darrow to um, 
I don't know, be their agent as as hard as they were. But I, I think there's yeah. sort of maybe some sort of alliance between them. And I think the the sovereign is somehow complicit with their operation. Probably with their operation on Mars because she's not on Mars. Okay. All right. All right, I dig. Yep. So to summarize that answer, you think the Sovereign is aligned with Ares because she's not on Mars. Not necessarily aligned, but connected to. Influencing. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. In in discussions with. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Positive or negative discussions? Positive discussions. Positive. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't think there's any sort of. I don't necessarily think there's an alliance, but I don't think there's any animosity. So there are our five bets for next week's reading. Um, With that, do you have any other thoughts on the reading that we either skipped over or didn't talk about enough Mm. that you wanted to like mention? I feel like we've mentioned pretty much everything that I had. We we picked this. We picked this pretty pretty thoroughly. So, okay. The one, the one, the one thing, the one thing that I wanted to discuss is that fight with the Bolognas, why was Cassius not there? And why was Cassius not at the Academy in general? I don't think that was mentioned or discussed within the book. To address that exactly, what are your thoughts? Like, why wouldn't he be there? Why wasn't he at the Academy? Um, Maybe he's just not good enough. I don't know if that's true. I don't think that's true. Okay. I think... If I want to be like really kind of thinking into all of it, I think he was probably scared. I think they as a family were scared of being in a situation where he has to be one-on-one with Darrow. So he kind of pushed his attendance by a year. The academy isn't necessary to survive. It's it's no, more for like praetors and people who are going into the fleet. And but do yeah. you think he's not? That absolutely um, something that he seems like he'd be going into. He he could, but with with Carnus also being there, like it, it kind of paints a picture as though like that part of the Bologna family has already taken advantage of that. And the mental, other six of so them, so maybe they're striving. Well, there's more than that, but like. It's an entire family. We're talking about a handful of cousins that oh, were there right. at the time. Okay, but the other six, I think, were at the academy. So I, I agree with you and understand. But also, that I think is also your effective counterpoint, saying that there were seven of them ish at the academy at the time in various roles. So could Cassius be doing something better? Could he be apprenticing under someone different? Could he be working a different angle than the rest of his family? Right. So I, I think there's thoughts to be had there. I, I yeah. don't. I don't know enough right now to make a prediction on that. But I think there's. I think there's some percolations of what to uh, look for in hints, ideas, as they say. Yep. As they do. Yeah. <laughs> so. We tackled so much information between the two books mm-hmm. and kind of the bleed over between the two. I'm very excited for us to move forward inside of the story. I've I I just I'm psyched. Um next week we're gonna be reading until chapter 13, 
What's very great for everyone who's following along is on Thursday, when the intro episode is published, I will have a calendar and you'll be able to follow along with us on our digital calendar weekly so that you make sure that you don't miss any sort of publication date or the pages that you need to hit or the chapters weekly. So it'll, it'll, it will simplify it greatly. And then on top of that, you'll also know our short stories ahead of time. Yes. If you're paying attention to the calendar. Correct. So it, it should be good. I've got it mapped out right now through February. So it should be a good time. Perfect. All right. Uh, all told, it was a good, good episode. Good week. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Words and Whiskey. We hope you've built up a tolerance to us. Subscribe to us on your preferred platform like Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever else you use. And check us out at our website, wordsandwhiskey.show. We filled our top shelf with our favorite cocktail recipes, as well as other important information for you. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at wordswhiskeypod. All those links and more can be found in our show notes. A five-star rating on the platform of your choosing goes a long way to springing us up on them leaderboards and getting us noticed. We're just two dudes helping encourage people to read and get out of their comfort zone while thinking critically about literature. Thanks for listening, and we bloody damn better see you next week. Bye.